Welcome back to the Science of Hitting podcast. This is the first episode I've recorded in about two months. The reason why I've been away has to do with today's discussion. On April 5th, after a few months of work behind the scenes, I launched the Science of Hitting Investment Research Service. The focus of today's podcast is twofold. First, I want to give some background on the service and why I decided to launch it. And second, I want to share some thoughts on the first month of the service. The seeds of this service go back to 2010 when I first started writing investment-related articles on Seeking Alpha while I was in college. I was getting closer to graduation, but I didn't have any reason to believe that I would actually land my dream job as an equities analyst. As I remember it, I sent emails to 30 or 40 fund managers asking for a job, and the response was universal. Give us a call in five or 10 years once you've gotten some experience. I needed to find a job sooner than that, and preferably in finance. So I decided that writing investment-related articles was a good way to get my name out there. Shortly after I started with Seeking Alpha, I received an email from somebody at Guru Focus asking me to write on their platform, with the kicker being that they'd pay me $10 an article. As a broke college kid, that sounded like a fortune, so I made the transition to Guru Focus. When I eventually got a job at an investment advisor, I still wanted to keep writing, so the science of hitting was born. As I discussed in the About Me section, I added the CFA designation and an MBA after college, but I've honestly found writing to be the most effective tool for becoming a better investor. There's just something about putting your words in writing that requires more clarity and enables you to see weaknesses in your arguments. Another major positive positive for me along the way has been the opportunity to build a network of like-minded investors to learn alongside, most notably on Twitter. These two things, writing and Twitter, have been a major positive in my life. Which brings me to the TSOH Substack. While I've enjoyed writing for Guru Focus, my sense over the past year was that I had an opportunity to speak and engage with my audience more directly. The advent of services like Substack has made it easy for someone like me to focus just about 100% of my time and attention on the research and writing, while Substack deals with everything else in the back end. And from a professional perspective, I also realized that there was nothing I'd enjoy more than the opportunity to write about investing full time. So once I decided to make that leap, it's when the work really began. Above all else, my goal for the service from day one was to ensure that the quality of the output was the best work that I was capable of. For the people willing to commit some of their money and more importantly, their time to the the TSOH service, to me, I wanted to ensure that I did all I could to exceed their expectations. If you're currently a subscriber, I really hope that has been your experience so far. One question I asked myself early on was how the service could differentiate itself. As many listeners know, there are people out there like Scuttleblurb, Andrew Walker, and Sleepwell Capital on Twitter, amongst others, who share really high quality research. What could I do to make my service stand out? The answer that I eventually settled on was complete transparency. The TSOH Investment Research Service covers everything that I do as an investor. Most notably, when I research new ideas, when I provide updates on current holdings, or anytime I make a portfolio change where I outline the buy decision, the sell decision, and the rationale for both sides of the trade. In a nutshell, I wanted to offer subscribers a level of transparency that I think is atypical in the finance industry. It's a decision that I knew would leave me open to criticism. It's inevitable, obviously, that I'll make uh, investment mistakes along the way. 
That said, it's also something that I've built up a tolerance for. Old guru-focused readers will know that I've never really shied away from discussing investment mistakes. And you can still find those articles today if you wanted to about companies like JCPenney or IBM that I invested in. So I felt if I could be completely open with subscribers, it might offer another layer of value for the right audience. It's still early days, but the feedback I've received so far indicates that this vision is starting to bear fruit. The first major post of the service, the April 2021 portfolio review, was always an important one for me. It was my first chance to speak to potential subscribers, as well as a chance to put all of my cards on the table. The process of writing, editing, and then editing another 20 or 30 times took about a month to finish. The post ended up being about 25 pages, which led to my first problem. When I went to put the portfolio review on Substack the night before the service was launched, it exceeded the size limit for email providers like Gmail. As a result, I had to break the post into three different parts, which I was definitely not happy about. But after dealing with that bump in the road and going live on the 5th, I could honestly tell myself that I was happy with the first post that I had put in front of subscribers. A side note here that's worth mentioning, my buddies Francisco Oliveira and Bill Brewster helped me a lot along the way, both with editing posts and thinking about things like pricing, thinking about how to market the service. They've just been incre incredibly helpful and I'm, I'm really happy to call them my good friends. So looking back over the past month, I've posted 10 articles so far and I've been pleased with the response from readers. It's always a trade-off between getting the message out and overwhelming people. So if you're someone on Twitter who, feel like, who feels like you've been bombarded with my sign-up tweets over the past few weeks, I'm sorry for, about that. But um, I think in general it's worked and you, know, you have to keep tweeting to, to get in front of new people. Um, so far, I've had right around 700 free sign-ups and a good number of paid subscribers as well. So I don't really have anything to benchmark it against, but I feel like that's a pretty pretty decent start. And I think I'm on my way to finding the right audience. Another thing I've been positively, positively surprised by is click rates among free signups when I've sent previews, like I did on the article about Netflix or the two posts about Spotify. The click rates on those articles among free signups has been at or above 50%, which suggests that there's a couple hundred people in the free signups that really do care about what I have to say. And, and they're seeing the quality of the work that I'm putting out there. So you know, over time, if these people have an investment philosophy that aligns with my own, naturally they'd be uh, where I would expect the next paid subscriber to come from. So it, I think it's working as a customer acquisition tool and I intend to lean into that more. Uh, one other aspect I wanna discuss, which I think might be interesting to some listeners who are considering launching something like this on their own, is pricing. When I first started putting the service together, I looked at the landscape and found that many sub stacks are priced at 10 or $15 per month. As I thought about what I was offering and after a bunch of back and forth in my own head, I concluded I'd be selling myself short at that price point. As I see it, for the people with a similar investment philosophy to my own, who also believe that I put out high quality research, the service is a great value, even at its current price point of $349 a year. For what it's worth, I've had a few people reach out to me and share similar sentiments, which in one sense means I've left money on the table, which isn't a great thing to do, but it also makes me feel good to, to know that some of the paid subscribers are getting good value from the service. Another thing that I decided early on was that I wanted to heavily incentivize people to choose the annual subscription over the monthly option. The primary reason for doing so was to ensure an alignment of interest. 
I think the full value of the service for a long-term investor will come from having having a complete picture of how I think about individual companies and how they fit into my investment portfolio. There's also something to be said for understanding my priors on any given investment. For example, when I share a quarterly update on Microsoft, I think you'll have a much better appreciation of my perspective if you know my history with the company, how long I've owned it, its size in my portfolio, et cetera. So simply put, I think the true value in a subscription like this will come with time as I build a working relationship alongside readers. I also wanted to ensure that the people who sign up for the service have actually taken the time to figure out whether it's a good fit for them. I'd rather have somebody not sign up at all for the paid version versus signing up and being dissatisfied with what they've paid for. So I think the pricing that I ultimately went forward with, $49 a month or $349 a year, does a fair job of balancing those considerations. So I hope this all gives you some insight into my rationale for launching the TSOH investment service, along with my experience since going live on April 5th. If you have interest in hearing more about the service, as always, please, please feel free to reach out to me uh, either on Twitter or via email. Thank you for your time, and I hope you have a great day.